As always, it is my pleasure and privilege to open up God's Word with you today. So if you do have your Bibles with you, why don't you open up them with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. As we get back into our series together, we've been in this series for quite a bit now, uh, Strength and Weakness, as you can see on the screen there, the, the sermon art, God's Treasure in Jars of Clay. So uh, specifically, we're headed to the ninth chapter this morning. So chapter nine uh, tells you that we've been in the study for a little bit now uh, this past year, but we did step out of it for two weeks to celebrate Easter. Uh, So for those of you who maybe haven't been with us or those of you who have and have stepped out, of course, the last two weeks, I think some review will be helpful for us to start off this morning to help us remember What's going on in this letter? Uh, Who are the players and where we find ourselves within it, where we're going to pick it up in chapter 9? So to that end, I'm actually going to ask you, even though we'll be in chapter 9, to flip to chapter 7. So chapter 7 is where we're headed, and we're going to pick it up there in a second. But I want to begin this morning with a question. Have you ever dealt with someone who is really bad, and I mean really bad, at following directions. I'm not talking about husbands. It's frustrating, right? When you give someone clear instructions and they fail to follow through. They somehow mess it up. They don't do it quite right. They don't do what you ask them to do. Now, that alone is frustrating. But what is really frustrating is if this person doesn't just fail to follow those instructions once, but twice, or maybe even more than that, or maybe it's not the same set of instructions, but it tends to be a recurring character trait. This is just someone who, no matter how plainly you explain it to them, you could tape the details of it to their forehead, and somehow they're just not going to get it right. This is someone who's really bad at following directions. Well, the Apostle Paul knew some people like this. He knew the Corinthians. He knew them well. He invested himself in them, with them, his, his time, his heart, his energy. He, he, he spent 18 months living among them, shepherding them. He was with them. He loved them. He cared for them. And during this time, of course, he got an idea of who he was dealing with, what they were like. The Corinthians were messy. Messy people with all kinds of different issues. Just like you and me. (laughs) Very much they fall in the category of really bad at following directions. And after these 18 months of, of spending time with them, walking next to them, teaching among them... He, uh, he didn't say, all right, I'm done with you guys. You can't figure this out. I'm leaving. They had their struggles, but he kept up a relationship with them. As you would in the ancient days from far away, he was off in Ephesus doing more gospel ministry work, and he kept up with them in letters, correspondence, and even some more visits. He didn't give up on them through this. And through these letters, we have two of them in our Bibles, but there are more. First and second Corinthians are in our Bibles. Uh, but there's, there's other letters as well. He had to keep on, these letters show us, clarifying, reinforcing, restating some of the same things over and over again. 
And you'd have to believe that this was frustrating for Paul, no doubt. It's frustrating for all of us when we need to restate and re-clarify and do this over and over again. But uh, Paul doesn't give up. He doesn't give up. His heart goes out to them. And, and that's what I want us to remember this morning is, is Paul's heart and his tone in this letter. He describes one of the letters he's written. We, we tend to call it the tearful letter because of what he says about it. He says that he wrote it out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, he said. So these, tear, these tears literally fell on the pages as he's writing, so to speak. And his heart is going out to them. He cares for them. Another one of his visits to them he describes as painful. It wasn't always easy for Paul in dealing with these messy people. And yet, as we might expect him to abandon them, you'll see on your study notes, which I hope you'll find helpful under that review section, the first note there, that despite the ongoing struggles of the Corinthians, this letter, 2 Corinthians, clearly shows us that Paul does not give up on these people in this church because he cares for them so. And so this letter, if you've been with us, you see the very personal nature within it, the, the, the heartfeltness of Paul, as even though, yes, he needs to repeat himself and correct what they've misinterpreted in his previous letters, and, and even he needs to defend himself from personal attack, even despite all that, he still communicates his care, his deep care for the Corinthians and even his joy and confidence in their progress. And so we're going to pick it up in chapter 7, where he says this. Verse 3, I do not say this to condemn you. This is Paul's heart. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. Paul is all in with these believers to die together and to live together, he says. And in this chapter, specifically chapter seven, he has joy. He's citing his joy. Despite all this struggle, he still has joy. Why? Not because of the struggles that he sees or the struggles that are ongoing, but because of the change he sees in their hearts. And such a change is only possible through God working in their hearts. And that's why he has joy. So as you see on your study sheet on the second point under the review section, what this did is it really kicked off an emphasis in this letter in chapter 7 where Paul focuses on heart change. And when our hearts change, our lives change. Our lifestyle changes. What we focus on changes. Our priorities change. How we spend our time, our resources changes. And yes, our money and that leads right into chapter 8 and chapter 9. We're going to look at chapter 9. But chapter 8 and 9 kind of go together in this letter as a section on Paul focusing on a very specific monetary gift. So he's focusing on money, on giving money here. And he has a very specific cause that he's raising money for. But we're going to see in our text, in chapter 9, that God's call on our lives as Christians, it's not to be people who give money. 
There are plenty of people who consistently give money. They perform the act of giving money, but their hearts are far away. God calls us to something greater. He calls us to imitate him, to be generous in heart with whatever we may have. This is the heart of a cheerful giver. And to have such a heart, of course, is no result of our own. It doesn't come from trying harder or doing more. It is only the result of God's gracious work in your heart, of his surpassing grace upon you. And as such, giving cheerfully is an act of maturity. It's evidence that God is maturing you. He's working in your heart to make you more and more like Jesus. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Sound good? I want to pray and ask for God's help for our time together in his word, and then we'll, we'll read the text together. But first, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pause now before we jump into your word together to, to thank you for it. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for not leaving us to guess at, at what you are like and to wonder at, at what truth is, but you show us this in your word. You reveal this to us. So Lord, would you use this time we have together to that end? Show us anew who you are. Show us the truth you have for us. And take that truth and plant it in our hearts so that we can grow and understand it and live by it. Change us, mold us into the image of Jesus. Use this time to do just that, Lord. Help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit. Amen. All right, you got your Bibles? 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to read the whole chapter, all 15 verses. This is God's word. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and enrage in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness 
endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. And by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So there you have it. There is a lot in there. As you can see on your study sheet, we've broken it down into three sections which we'll discuss in order, starting with that first headline there that that covers the first five verses. Readiness to give is not contingent on a full pocketbook, but a willing heart. And readiness, of course, is in quotes there because that is the term Paul uses to describe the Corinthians, at least in my ESV Bible in verse 2. Some Bibles translate that as eagerness or willingness. Paul's point is that the Corinthians' hearts Their hearts are ready to give, not because they are merely willing to do so, but because they want to do so. They want to give. Let's read verse 2. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you, to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, of which Corinth was the capital, so he's saying, this is, he's talking about them, they have been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Evidently, the Corinthians' passion for this project was enough to stir up others to give as well. Paul thought they were ready. He saw their willingness. Now, if you were with us a few weeks ago and we were looking at chapter 8, we did two sermons on chapter 8, you might remember that Paul is raising money for a very specific project for the believers who are in Jerusalem, or as it says in our Bibles, the saints in Jerusalem, perhaps, who were apparently in need. So I just want to be clear, this is not a building project or a cool new ministry to support. This was basic humanitarian aid for those who need it. That tends to be the type of support that is easier to raise and Paul references the, the saints without specifying uh, Jerusalem in verse 1. Let's read that together. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. Now, why would it be superfluous? Because this falls under the category of something that Paul has already given clear instructions on. He's already talked with them about this a lot. In fact, chapter 8 He's talking about it the whole chapter. 
And then in previous correspondence in 1 Corinthians, we actually have detailed instructions that he's given these folks about how to prepare their gift. So evidently, he's already presented this need to them. They've responded with willing hearts. They want to give, and so he gives them instructions on how to do it. But you remember that these are the people who are really bad at following directions. So Paul here is celebrating their willingness, yes, but he does have something to say. So he says, even though it's superfluous for me to say anything more about this task that I've asked you to do, I have something else to say. And he says so in verse three. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. So this is Paul's version of per my last email. Can you please do the thing I asked you to do? I put on your study sheet there that that Paul's walking a careful line here of celebrating the willing hearts of the Corinthians. And he is doing that. They are willing and he's celebrating that. He's boasting about it to the Macedonians. But he's also calling them now to follow through on that readiness and act, to act on their willing hearts. Obey, do it. Now, Paul was genuinely celebrating the willing hearts of the Corinthians. So this is also on your study sheet. This was a genuine boast of Paul because it was a genuine zeal, a genuine passion displayed by the believers in Corinth. But Paul was not exactly celebrating any work of man, rather the visible work of God in their hearts. He saw God working in their hearts and he celebrated that. But now Paul wanted them to follow through and do it, do it. So he mentions these brothers, this this delegation which he has sent out ahead of his arrival. So Paul is coming to collect the gift. He references that in verse four. I'm coming. I might even bring some Macedonians with me. And remember, he's told the Macedonians, these people over here, they're ready. And so if we show up, you better be ready. So he dispatches the brothers ahead. So there's no humiliation going on. He's avoiding that embarrassment by sending them ahead to say, hey, remember you said you were going to do this thing. You should probably get ready because Paul's coming. That type of thing. Now I hear of, um, this delegation, and I think of debt collectors. You know, they're, they're showing up with the baseball bat. They're ready to break some knees. They got to collect the money that was promised. Um, but in fact, these brothers were not there to increase pressure at all. Quite the opposite. Paul sent them out ahead. The timing of his dispatch of them was important because he wanted to not rush them. He went, didn't want them to give out of compulsion. He didn't want to show up and say, give now. He wanted to give them space and time to have thoughtfulness about their gifts and sincerity in their gifts. And verse five summarizes this. Let's read that together. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and enrage in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready, here's the purpose, as a willing gift, not as an exaction. All this tells us is that Paul was less concerned about the gift itself. Of course, he wanted to raise money, but he was more concerned with the motives of their heart. 
And that is all the more evident in what Paul will say in the next remaining verses, really what is the the meat of our text. And so we're going to look at this next section, verses 6 through 11 together under the heading, We are blessed to be a blessing to others. So let's pick it up in verse 6. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. We'll stop there for a second. Paul is using a very simple but yet profound and beautiful farming principle to tell us something about giving, specifically giving from that which we have been given already, that which we have. You might think, yeah, I've heard it before. You reap what you sow. I know what that means. It means the harvest received is directly proportional to the amount of seed sown. But is that what Paul is saying here, specifically when it comes to giving? I mean, you could read this and think, if I give X amount of gifts and they are Y-sized big, then I will receive and return X amount of gifts that are Y-sized. As if this process of giving is like a vending machine where you put something in and you get something out of equal return. Is that what Paul is after here? Is Paul saying the size of our gifts are what matters? Is he saying the amount of our gifts is what is most important? I don't think that's what he's saying at all. So I think to understand what Paul is saying, we have to, for a moment, put on our straw ancient farmer hats and become ancient farmers. So you are now an ancient farmer. The more seed you sow, the more likely you are to receive a greater harvest. Correct? Yeah, I think we can agree on that. So then what is preventing you from dropping truckloads of seed all over at every inch of the field that you have? Besides the fact that you could overseed. Let's, you know. What is preventing you from dropping the optimal amount of seed over every inch of land that you have? And well, the simple answer is that as a farmer, your seed is your livelihood. It is what you have. And so you can use it to plant and hope and pray that it grows. Or you can save it and eat it yourself. And you definitely need to eat. Did you see the tension here? And so you have two different approaches that Paul lists to sowing seed. First, you have the stingy farmer. He sows sparingly. He is stingy with the seed he has because it is a security blanket for him. He can still eat it, right? And he needs to eat. So he's very careful not to waste anything more than he has. So he, he gets a little bit of seed from what he has in the larger storehouse and he holds this bag carefully and I imagine him intricately planting one seed at a time and clutching that small bag of seed in his hand very careful not to drop anything of value. This is the stingy farmer. The second farmer sows bountifully. He dances out of the barn and he's got a big old bag of seed. And as he's hopping around, seeds are falling on the ground. He barely notices. Ah, The birds will benefit, he thinks. And he hops over to the field and he reaches down deep into his bag 
and with outstretched arm and open palm, he flings seed in every direction. And then he takes another leap, reaches in again, and flings it out one more time. Sends another scoop flying. This is the generous farmer. Now both these farmers sown, sowed seeds, but only one delights in the process. Paul is using this example to communicate that in the process of giving, the approach of our hearts is what matters to God. He explains this further in verse 7. Let's read. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know, Paul could have showed up to these Corinthians and said, hey, you should give me money. There's people who really need it. And they probably would have given him some money. But Paul isn't merely raising money. He's shepherding hearts. Gifts are cool. But you know what is better? Heartfelt gifts. Thoughtful gifts. You know why? Because it's less about the gift itself and more about the love expressed by the giver and the love received from the recipient. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, God loves gifts. He says, God loves a cheerful giver. Because God doesn't want our gifts as much as he wants our hearts. So the call here is not to the isolated act of giving itself, but for us to be cheerful givers. So Christians are not called to be people who give, but to be generous people. Do you see the difference? As we said before, there are plenty of people who give on a consistent basis when their heart is not in the right place at all. There are plenty of poor reasons to give. A lot of them come back to self-interest. But the cheerful giver, on the other hand, has a genuine desire to bless others. That is the intention, to bless others, to be a blessing. And that desire merely expresses itself through the act of giving, through reaching deep into your bag of seed and letting it fly. Okay, how are we doing so far? Okay? All right, we've covered a bit, all of which is intended, I think, to direct us to assess our hearts. Where are our hearts at in all this? What is the motivation? Where are the desires of our heart? And maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking, well, I've got the motivation to bless. I, I want to help but I just don't have the funds. I don't have the means. I, I just, I can't swing it right now. Well, check out this remarkable verse, verse eight. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This is a glorious truth. God always 
provides. God always provides what we need. It could be hard for us to remember, but he knows our needs better than we do. And he knows how to meet them better than we do. And it doesn't always look like maybe we want it to look. And in this context, Paul is specifically saying that God will provide everything we need for every good work that he asks us to do. God will give us what we need to be faithful to him and to what he has called us to do. And so the question for us is not, do I have what I need for this task? Am I, am I properly equipped to do this? But rather, will I step out in faith and obey, trusting that God will provide everything I need to do it? And he will. As one pastor put it, we will always be rich enough to be generous. It's mm. good. If you really think about it, we cannot truly give in the proper sense because we have nothing to give that is not already a gift given to us by God. So we have only the ability to pass forward, joyfully so, the gifts that have been given to us. Take a look at verse 10. He, of course, is God here. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So take the bread listed here. Notice what Paul does not say. He doesn't say God supplies the seed to the sower and the sower provides the bread through hard work. That's not what he says. He says God supplies the seed and God supplies the bread. Now wait, Paul, what about all the hard work? Eh, He hasn't forgotten that. Paul hasn't forgotten all that hard work of sowing the seed, carefully tilling the land, collecting the harvest through threshing, winnowing the grain from the shaft, grinding it up by hand, all the steps involved in preparing the dough and then finally baking the bread. And yet who supplies the bread? All that work, but who supplies it? God. God, of course. For apart from him, we have nothing and can do nothing. God is the one who gives that grain farmer life. A brain to think, reason and understand, hands and feet to do the work. Land from which to plant and harvest. Sun and rain from which to grow eyes to see, ears to hear, taste buds to enjoy, and a voice to whistle while he works. We could go on and on. God provides. We own nothing that doesn't come as a gracious gift from his gracious hand. This is one of the most fundamental truths in Scripture. And in this context, Paul is stressing that there's a reason God does this. God blesses us with everything we need for this purpose so that we can use those gifts that he's given us to be a blessing to others. We are blessed to be a blessing. Let's read verse eight one more time. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's good, isn't it? A generous heart lives in this abounding grace and cheerfully passes those gifts forward. And such a heart does not see possessions as possessions at all, but as gifts from God to be shared with others. Is that how you view what you've been given? Or is it yours? It's a good question. The question is, do you walk through this life with a closed, possessive fist over what you have achieved and what you have earned and say, mine? Or do you walk through this life with an open palm? Not only eagerly and ready to receive the blessings that you know are coming, but then also just as eagerly ready and willing to share those gifts with those God has given you to bless. It's a good question for us to ask ourselves, not just today, but every day. Because the call to be generous is not an occasional opportunity, but a daily discipline. And this is really cool. Exercising generosity develops more generosity. Just like he does with other forms of righteous living, God can use our obedience to lead our hearts along. So it may be hard at first. You get an opportunity to give and your heart might not be fully on board, but you feel this tug in your heart that you should do it. And if you obey and do it, God can use that to grow your heart for it. In this way, exercising giving can be for our hearts what physical exercise is for our muscles. Something that builds us up and makes us more healthy. The more you do it, the more you get an appetite for it, the more you might actually begin to like it and thrive doing it. There are benefits to working out. I need to remember that, so I do it. Here's some benefits. Verse 9, Paul references the psalmist who, who distributed freely, just like the generous farmer who sowed bountifully and, and notes that his righteousness for giving to the poor endures forever. What he has done will be remembered in heaven without end. And in verse 10, Paul references a harvest of righteousness for the giver that God only increases and supplies more seed for more harvest. And now in verse 11, he says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Again, Paul is making it clear here that we will have everything we need to be generous. Even in a season of lack, you have everything you need to be a generous person. But I think with this mention of being enriched in every way, Paul has more in mind here than material riches. There's a spiritual dimension at play too. Sure, on paper, when you give away X amount of dollars, you decrease in wealth by X amount of dollars. 
but in God's economy. The Christian who gives generously to others does not make himself more poor, but more rich. And I'd like to use my dad as an example of this, if I can get through it. Um, My dad, he doesn't have a lot of money. Never really has, at, at least that I know of. But if you lived in Leola, Pennsylvania in the last 30 years, there's a good chance you would know the name Jim McArdle. He's the kind of guy who keeps having to buy shirts because he keeps giving them away. You know what I mean? Gives the shirt off his back. I like to refer to him as the George Bailey of Leola. You remember George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. It's my dad's favorite movie. Well, if you know the movie, George's life wasn't all that wonderful at all, or at least on the surface, so he thought. He had big dreams of leaving his hometown, Bedford Falls, and and traveling the world. Well, long story short, he ends up sticking around, working a, a simple job as the bank manager of a little bank in that little town, while many of his friends go on to live out their dreams and do big, flashy things. But yet, in this simple job, he has the opportunity to do a simple and yet wonderful thing. To help people. Help people. Simple. Wonderful. And there's a scene in It's a Wonderful Life that always makes me cry at the end. And so, excuse me if tears come. Where if you've not seen the movie, spoiler alert... George is in trouble, and all the people that he's served and helped over the years come to bail him out. And there's this scene where they're all gathered in the room, and they're, they're putting their money to help him out in the basket, and there's just this moment where there's all kinds of people gathered in this room, all different kinds of people, left and right. The room is packed. It's a room filled with these people that George has given his life to. And there's this moment where his brother raises a glass and proposes a toast and says, to my big brother George, the richest man in town. Hmm? The richest man in town. What a beautiful picture that is. A room full of people. George certainly wasn't the man with the most money in town. But he was the richest man in town because he sowed bountifully. He gave himself, indeed gave his whole wonderful life to others. That's what made it wonderful. Well, George Bailey is just a fictional character to most of us, but not to me and not to the people my dad has shown love to over the years. And so if my dad's ever in trouble, I know the room only big enough to fit all the people he served, it's in heaven. So no, my dad doesn't have a lot, but he's the richest man I know. For me, my dad's the one I think of when I think of a cheerful giver. Maybe you have somebody different who you're thinking of, who you know well. You know, seeing them, it gives us inspiration to do what we know is right. But ultimately, it points us to the ultimate 
picture we all have in the person of Jesus. Hmm. Cheerful giving is an expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is gospel work. And as you see on your study sheet, cheerful giving is, is, is evidence that, that God is working in our hearts to do a very specific thing, to make us more and more like the cheerful giver himself, Jesus. Jesus became poor so that we might become rich. He willingly, generously left heaven to come to earth, this sin-cursed world where you and I live, endure the same temptations, the same hardships we experience here. Jesus entered into that willingly, and he did it all to deliver us from it. But doing so wouldn't be easy. It required the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate example of cheerful giving this world has ever known. Jesus died on the cross, bearing our sin and our shame, taking the full wrath of God on his shoulders for all the bad we've ever done and all the good we failed to do. All of that, hear this, is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more because of the generous heart of Jesus. And he offers to everyone who will trust in him a gift that we could never obtain for ourselves, citizenship in heaven, a place so very different than this world we know where things fall apart and go wrong. No more sorrow, no more pain. He promises that he will make our hearts just like his. He is the cheerful giver. And if you don't know him this morning, if you've never put your trust in the name of Jesus, the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Don't delay. Make today the day you trust in Jesus. And if you want to talk more about that, I'd love to talk with you after service. And I know there are people in this room on your left and your right who would love to do the same thing. Let's close with these words this morning. The call in these two chapters where Paul is talking about money It's not a call to a legalistic deed for the sake of deeds. This is not a call to get on God's nice list as if he's Santa Claus, keeping and weighing a record of rights and wrongs and to determine your status. This is not a call to to reach down deep within you to, to find some will to give and to be generous. No, this is a call to remember and respond to the grace we have been given in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The call in this text is for us to imitate him, imitate the generous and obedient heart of our Savior. Because this is a task that we can't do on our own, the call here is to trust and to actively lean into the daily grace that he provides for you for every good work he asks you to do. The call is to believe and to obey, to believe that God is able to make all grace abound to you in all things at all times, and then to obey, to obey the Spirit's tug on your heart where he's asking you to step up and step out and to give and to serve those around you. And in all of this, 
To God be the glory. Would you stand and we'll close together. After we pray, I want to give you a heads up. We're going to do something a little different. So before you rush out the door, I'm going to use verse 8. Adapt it and paraphrase it as a benediction for us after we pray. But first, let's pray. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are a great giver. Indeed, a cheerful, willing giver. And we are thankful that you don't just show us what that looks like, but that we get to be the recipients of all those gracious gifts. Thank you for the good news this morning that as we think about the tall task of trying to to be like Jesus, you are able to make all grace abound to us, to give us everything we need to be generous like him. So Lord, would you be with us in this way as we go? Make us generous like Jesus and help us to trust you with everything we have. Do that work in our hearts as we go. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And may the God who is able to make all grace abound to you do just that, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, may you abound in every good work. God be with you as you go.